0: My name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And this is a series first a part two episode
1: Jess Franco part two to be specific a long time ago maybe even over a year ago we promised a second part almost like two three years ago it feels like first of all I'd like to apologize to any listeners I don't know if this is picking up but I'm recording from a different and slightly more echoey location than I normally do Uh, just imagine that uh, if I am coming across as more echoey or a little more tinny sounding just imagine that I'm dubbing a character in a Jess Franco movie
0: I was gonna say, you're at the Jess Franco mansions, the castles that appear in all of his sex films, and where all the archival knowledge of the Franco estate resides. So
1: this is the first director that we've ever done a part two of. It may be the last director. Why do we do a part two about Jess Franco?
0: Because Jess Franco has made more movies that have been released theatrically and aren't all pornography than probably anyone on earth, I would say. And all of these films are are an extension of his self. They are not just for a higher
1: work. You know, Tarantino often talks about how he wants to maintain a rigorous quality control of his work, because he doesn't want some future kid to reach into a pile of his movies at random and pick out the bad one. He doesn't want them to pick out Skidoo or Land of the Pharaohs. And, you know, I often think that Tarantino's full of shit when he starts talking like this. Oh, I agree. (laughs) uh, But it's true that it took me a long time to appreciate Jess Franco for precisely this reason, because... Vast career. Many different pockets of interest. I think the first one of his I ever saw may have been Count Dracula. Ooh,
0: that's a bad one to start with.
1: And then after that, it might have been like Ilsa, the Wicked Warden. You know, mm. and definitely a couple others after that. I saw Marquis de Sade, Justine, pretty early on.
0: So you saw all these slick Harry Allen Towers, Jess Franco films, which are the ones that are probably the easiest to see and take in, but are not the expressions of his self. Like the films will be talking about
1: today and even the films that are expressions of himself i think it could possibly take you a little while to get into them i think they're like those magic eye paintings you know where (laughs) where like either you see the 3d image or you don't but once you do you're hooked and Stephen thrower the scholar of jess franco Stephen thrower's written an excellent two-part book series about him has said that you know Franco's filmography is more than the sum of its parts. No one Jess Franco movie is all that important, at least compared to the currents that run through them. Tim Lucas of Video Watchdog said the same thing, that you haven't seen...
0: A pure Jess Franco film until you've seen every Jess Franco film. And like any archaeologist, the passion that overtakes fans is one that can never be extinguished because there are Jess Francos rotting on shelves, still never
1: seen by any audiences to this day. And Jess Franco passed away in 2013. He's made over 180 films, and it's impossible to know the true number because there are some that are lost, there are some that were uncompleted, there are some that are apocryphal, like... Uh, what was that one? Um, Golden Temple Amazons. I think he he co-directed and there's some question about how much he did.
0: According to Stephen Thrower, he directed a little
1: bit of it and then he had to step back and another guy uh, stepped in, did the rest of it. So it's not really a Just Franco movie. Franco worked in almost every imaginable genre, comedy, drama, horror. He made war movies. He made action films, spy films, hardcore and softcore pornography. He worked with big movie stars. But I think we know what we're talking about, at least at this point, when we talk about a Jess Franco movie, right?
0: Oh, yeah. We're talking about zooms. We're talking about improv. We're talking about zooming into improvised scenes of Lina Romay naked. <laughs> that is mostly Jess Franco's later period
1: filmography. Of his 180 films, I don't know how many fall into this category because he made professional films The Harry Allen Towers ones that we talked about in the last Jess Franco episode, like Justine or The Bloody Judge or The Castle of Fu Manchu, those are ones that have big movie stars, are fairly professional. He made straight up horror movies. But I think what we're thinking of is like what has been called the horodica. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I would say that we probably wouldn't be talking about Jess Franco today if he hadn't made like pure horror movies like Faceless or Bloody Moon. Because if he hadn't touched those, I don't think there would have been an entry point for most fans to get obsessed with his work. If he had mostly done, you know, uh, Sex is Crazy, which is a film me and you watched, I don't think that he would be the cult bigger that he is, which I think is interesting. And we've talked about this before, that like horror is an entryway to fandom, but most of the genres are not, especially the weird kind of pornography that Jess Franco dabbled
1: in. So when we last left Jess Franco, he had parted company from Harry Allen Towers, who was his benefactor, a Dino De Laurentiis-like European super producer, uh, you know, a, a real swashbuckling type, often on the wrong side of the law, who was... Very good at gathering these euro pudding casts of, like, Klaus Kinski and Christopher Lee and Herbert Lom and people like that. And after that, Franco made, I think we talked about Vampiros Lesbos, which is maybe his definitive film. And then after that, throughout the 70s and 80s, he made increasingly marginalized, increasingly pornographic productions, but insanely prolific, sometimes 10, 12 movies a year, filming multiple movies at once, sometimes filming movies on the fly without his financiers knowing it.
0: Well, this is a good point to bring in the next major Franco financier, who was Erwin C. Dietrich, who worked through the company's Elite Films. Now Franco made most of his mid-budget tier titles around this time for Erwin C. Dietrich, the Jack the Ripper film that stars Klaus Kinski and and will instantly put you to sleep. That was made for Elite Films. A lot of the slicker women in prison films that he made around here, like Barbed Wire Dolls. Okay, Barbed Wire Dolls, not very slick, but it's one that he made for Elite Films and Erwin C. Dietrich. Erwin C. Dietrich was a guy who had made a lot of money making movies. He could do everything in the industry, but Jeff Franco was a guy that he kind of stumbled in on and went, oh, this dude can make all of the movies I would ever want. And around this time, I think one of the defining traits of Jess Franco comes into play, which is that Jess Franco cannot stop making movies. And this bit him in the butt working for Erwin C. Dietrich. Because what ended up happening is that Jess Franco would make the film that he was hired for, and then sometimes the same cast and crew, he would go and shoot a few scenes here, a few scenes there, and a number of times his producer found out and he
1: was not pleased. And this era of his career is when the movies really start to feel like free associative writing. You know, it feels like He's got a camera and he's just spewing whatever the first thing that comes into his head is. One of the reasons Franco is interesting to me is because, I mean, on the one hand, he's very obviously an auteur. He's got stories and themes and motifs that recur dozens of times in his filmography. There's mad doctors and surgical brutality and horror and... Insatiable women and sees women
0: mind-controlled into murdering people, which is a plot that he goes back to again and again and again. And there are
1: many stylistic motifs too: uh, nude people or people in skimpy negligees wandering around some scenic seaside mansion, uh, while the camera lingers on them or zooms in strange ways, and bizarre jazz music plays. So it's got all that, but also he challenges the idea of an otour of, like, a Tarkovsky or a Kubrick, people like that who spend years ruminating on each film, or even somebody like Woody Allen, who was on a very well-funded assembly line. Well,
0: Jess Franco is as close as you can get to, like automatic filmmaking in the sense that like he's making these movies and sometimes you don't even get the sense that he knows what movies he's making but that he's just doing it as quickly as possible so then he can move on to the next one some of his cast members like to say stuff like you know if just franco just concentrated on one movie at a time i think he could make great stuff but he just couldn't. He always had to be moving on to the next thing. And, you
1: know, maybe that's true. Or maybe he would have made a lot of movies like Marquis de Sad Justine or. Yeah,
0: that are just kind of boring. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> boring stuff like that. It was also around this time, the Irwin C. Dietrich era, that he met and married uh, the love of his life, Lena Rome. And
0: what I did not know is that Lena Rome worked for Jess Franco for a long time alongside her husband. <laughs> and they made a lot of movies together and it wasn't until a picture that never got completed called Madinga in 1975 did shit really hit the fan because what ended up happening was that Jess Franco and Lena Rame just disappeared into the night and in the middle of shooting no one knew where they were after two weeks they called the cops like they had abandoned everything in their hotel room and just split nobody knows quite why this happened Jess Franco has given very uh, vague answers when asked about it um, later on in his career. But basically, what it seemingly comes down to is that Jess Franco owed a lot of people a lot of money and he just bailed. And eventually, he did come back and his producer, Edwin C. Dietrich essentially owned him he paid off his debts and if you look at the filmography from franco from that point on a lot of his films are like shot in studio spaces which is not something franco liked but he had to do it because it feels like dietrich thought that franco was gonna bolt
1: (laughs) and by the way regarding Lena romay i believe that for the first two or three years of their working relationship, during which they probably made dozens of films together. She was she was married to that husband, that first husband, and it they didn't consummate their relationship for two or three years, which is just interesting because the two of them, Rome and Franco, are often discussed as like exhibitionist and voyeur. If you watch enough Jess Franco movies, you become intimately familiar with every inch of Lena Romay's Anatomy. Those early films all the way to the later ones, she was acting in his movies until the very, very end, uh, until she passed away in, I think, 2008 or 2009. Rarely has a film director been obsessed with with a performer as much as he was. I
0: I always associate it with Female Vampire, which is not the first time that they work together, but it feels like that's the purest Rome, like right in front of you. Like the female vampire,
1: that's her, and you're gonna see all of her. So I love Lena Rome. I think she's a great actress. And I watched a film that they made together from the Irwin C. Dietrich period this week called die marquise von sad also known as dorianna gray and it has uh, nothing to do with the marquis de Sade or oscar wilde but it's this very bizarre story uh, a woman who was separated at birth from her uh, i guess uh identical twin sister the twin sister is put into an institution and they are psychically linked where She is sexually insatiable, but can never reach climax. But her sister in the institution is always reaching the climaxes, you know, from a distance that she wants to achieve. How much sex is there in the movie, Will? (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of sex. In fact, it goes into hardcore territory even. It's an early Jess Franco hardcore film. Now,
0: Jess Franco supposedly didn't uh, have much of an inclination to shoot hardcore early on, but his producer said, listen, you do it or we'll do it for you. So he said, all right, I'm going to get behind the camera and I'll shoot it. And eventually it just organically, or, you know, I guess, due to the demand of the business, became something that he went to over and over again later in his career.
1: Yeah, in the 80s, he made a lot of hardcore movies that are frankly not very good, not very interesting. But Daimarchie's Von Saad is, I think, unbelievably beautiful. And it's an example of one of the things that Franco can do that... No one else can do in quite the same way that he does, which is just create something seemingly out of nothing. He has all of his bizarre stylistic tics, the music, the zoom lens, the roving camera, the bizarre costume design, the tin-eared dialogue, another one where it's people wandering around this mansion, the camera going into strange places that you wouldn't expect it to go, often very intimate places, seemingly at random. And it's just this alchemy of like, Nobody creates a mood like this.
0: I mean, Franco is a filmmaker that it's sometimes difficult to explore his filmography, not only because there's a lot of them, but like we've said before, they tend to repeat themselves. So you try to hone in on the ones that have something weird about them. Like reading Stephen Thrower's amazing volume two about just Franco, you can feel the pain Thrower is going through at times being like, this is another crappy film that Franco made for uh, the company. Golden Films, a company that he made so many films for, that some of them they didn't release because they didn't know what to do with them. So you like try to hone in on, you know, stuff like the one that you mentioned, which has that kind of minimalism, or Night of a Thousand Desires, which is just beautiful in the way that it's just laid out. That you could take frames from it and just like put it
1: as art in like an apartment somewhere. I love Night Has a Thousand Desires. It feels like. You just put pure style into a syringe and inject it into your veins. There's nothing going on in the movie except what's right there on the surface, it seems. It's this almost like very pure, sensual stylistic experience.
0: I think that Franco at his stylistic best is when he's working uh, through a minimalist lens, but is also telling the story in an abstract way that he's not having to hit beats of pornography or anything like that, but can approach it in, Oh, okay. This is kind of like last year at Marion bad, but shot through the perspective of someone like Jess Franco. What were some of the other ones you watched this week? So I tried to explore all the weirdest ones that Stephen thrower said. So I checked out, uh, Um, One called Sex is Crazy, a.k.a. The Sex is Crazy, which Thrower uh, in his write up describes as Franco was so inspired by the return of Jean-Luc Godard to narrative film that he wanted to apply it to his own work. And I was like, oh, boy, can't wait to check this out. And it's fine. Like, it's a little crazy, but it's not wild in the way that you wish like a deconstruction of a jess franco film sex film would be
1: yeah i also watched that on Stephen thrower's recommendation the idea of jess franco doing godard is very exciting to me and it's a little disappointing i think i would have liked it a bit better if i had stumbled upon it without knowing anything about it The plot is, and the plot is actually kind of, kind of wild. It's, there's a theatrical troupe who stage a show in which aliens come to Earth and impregnate Earth women, often 600 per minute. Um, so that's strange. And there are two couples involved in this stage show, one of them, Lena Romay, who decide to get married as a foursome. And then later on, uh, there are real aliens who come in.
0: Yeah, and they're also watching movies within movies, and sometimes they're spies, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just sitting in a car and speaking gibberish that kind of sounds like English, but it's not. I mean, describing it like that sounds wild. And I'd be like, got to check this out. We're leaving out like the 20 minute sex scenes that play out. And these sex scenes are the usual stuff you would see in a Jess Franco movie. Sometimes there's like a weird
1: limb that comes in that's not involved with anybody on screen. But that's pretty much it. Yeah, it's a little boring, but it's got some funny parts. I mean, if you just stumbled on this out of nowhere and knew nothing about Jess Franco, you might say, what is this? What sort of mad vision would create something like this? In the
0: mid 80s, Franco went through a period where he made a few non-sex films. So I checked out um, White Bay, a.k.a. White Bianca, which was recently put out by Severin. And it's kind of like Franco doing Fastbender where it's like a bunch of characters trapped in, you know, a faraway place and the drama that kind of bubbles up with them. People die by the end of it. Lena Romay plays a mute, mentally disabled woman that's being taken care of by her sister, who's also a prostitute. But then there is conflict with some of the people that live on the island. And eventually it reaches a violent conclusion. It was fun only because... This late in his career, like the mid 80s, you don't associate Franco with this kind of stuff, like trying to make a straight ahead dramatic film. Does Lena Romay spend most of the film with her top off? Why, yes, she does. But it doesn't evolve into like 10 minute sex scenes.
1: I checked out three of his most popular movies, which are all horror movies from the 80s. I watched Oasis of the Zombies. Which I don't know why you watched that one. I'll tell you why I watched it, because it was now or never.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you're right.
1: Uh, This is one of his most popular films, or by popular, I mean most widely seen, probably.
0: I love that Oasis of the Zombies is the result of Jess Franco quitting Zombie Lake because he said he did not have the resources to make
1: it, and then he ended up making a cheaper version of that movie, Oasis of the Zombies. Well, Jess Franco has talked about in interviews that he didn't like zombie movies, and he didn't like george romero he called george romero a primitive which is very strange considering how sophisticated some of george romero's movies are next to Franco's. yeah uh, but this one it's like kind of a ripoff of a fulci zombie movie it's a lot of people in the desert and uh i you know i don't even want to describe the plot of it because it's beneath my dignity describe the plot of it a lot of people in the desert walking in the desert walking through the desert and the zombie scenes when they occur are so bad they're almost insulting like the paper mache (laughs) makeup it's it's I I mean, you can definitely tell, like the Supreme Court, I know it when I see it, when Jess Franco is engaged and when he isn't. And he's not engaged in Oasis of the Zombies. But you also watched Bloody Moon, didn't you? And I love Bloody Moon, and that's... Ugh, Bloody Moon's so good. <laughs> that one is kind of, it's corny to call it kind of a so-bad-it's-good movie. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's fully so-bad-it's-good. Actually, no, it is. Yeah, let,
0: but <laughs> you can feel Franco, like, winking behind the camera. Like, he's having a blast making this movie. Introducing like 30 red herrings. Such ridiculous kill scenes, like the film's
1: famous uh, decapitation, which is on the poster. Yeah. But plays out in bloody mannequin head detail. It is basically a tin-eared European version of an American slasher movie. It's there's this deformed man who killed a schoolgirl, you know, years ago and he gets released from an asylum and he is given back into the care of his family who run a boarding school for teenagers and this boarding school for teenagers, you know, it's another one of Jess Franco's uh palatial mansions that people wander around and it's full of teenagers who, you know, don't don't kind of don't quite act right and there's like a disco scene that the music's just not quite right.
0: Ugh, the music in this movie rocks so much though. I oh, actually had the soundtrack it. on my phone. I would just like listen to it like a couple of years ago cuz the songs just rock so hard. And by rock I mean like off-key disco numbers.
1: Everything in the movie is just a little bit nonsensical, a little bit a little bit off. Like there's that early scene where they're on a train. And the train goes through a tunnel and the main character, the deformed guy, his sister says to him, did you throw that woman out the window? And then she just stands up from her seat and says, no, I'm here. (laughs) And it's like, okay, because she exists outside of the frame, then obviously this character who's right in front of her couldn't see her. I mean, the movie is just full of moments like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I feel it's just like Jess Franco having a ball with a subject that I think doesn't really interest him that much while he does get into like torture and sadism in his movie Movies, the idea of that kind of 80s style violence is not something you don't really feel he has a handle on it very much. So it's mostly just fun watching him kind of like struggle with it in this film. I mean, you also watched uh, Faceless, which is a late 80s um, attempt at straight horror and is also a remake of again for the hundredth time of the
1: Orloff films that he's been making throughout his career. The old stalwart Howard Vernon shows up in Faceless playing Dr. Orloff. So Jess Franco had a little view universe going on in his movies. <laughs> yeah, for the fans. <laughs> and Faceless is interesting because it was a comeback film for him. After a decade spent toiling in very low-budget horror and pornography films, he came back with this Reasonably budgeted, basically mainstream horror film that had a cast with recognizable people in it. Helmut Berger is in it. Bridget Lehane is in it. Telly Savalas is in it for one scene, <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple scenes, but he clearly just did one day, and uh, a couple of other recognizable actors, Robert Mitchum's son Chris, and. I thought that since that this was going to be the comeback movie, I thought it would be very well behaved. And it is sort of it's slick but it's got all of the Jess Franco obsessions in it.
0: I mean, he can't get away from that. Like, he, there's no way that late in his career he was going to be like, I'm just going to play nice and make a straight-ahead horror movie. It's Jess Franco. He is too used to doing this. So even when he has a bunch of money to work with, it's going to look like one of his pictures. Lots of zooms, kind of off-kilter. I think the movie's dubbed as well, and it feels weird the way that everybody talks.
1: Yeah, and it has kind of a cheap. Cheesy soft rock soundtrack instead of the normal jazz. And the sheen of it, the visual look, looks kind of like one of the made for cable movies Joe D'Amato was making in the 80s. <laughs> That's a meaningless reference. But
0: did you find that there was something missing seeing that Jess was working with so much
1: money? Maybe a little bit. I like Jess Franco best when he has nothing to work with and it's just mm, I agree. a pure style that he's able to conjure out of nothing. That said, I think Faceless is fun. It's a kooky horror movie about a mad doctor who has a sister, a beautiful sister whose face was disfigured, and he's trying to find uh, just the right woman to do a face transplant on. Classic Franco plot. And it takes place during Christmas as well, so it's a Christmas movie. It has some lulls in it, but it's got enough of the Franco kookiness. There's
0: never been a Jess Franco movie that I've watched, and I'm like, man, it just went like a bullet. <laughs> Barely felt the time passing, because that's the experience of watching Jess do a thing. Like you almost get hypnotized at times when you're just watching like somebody slowly do a strip
1: show for 15 minutes. You know, Franco, I would have thought would ride the faceless wave into making i don't know uh, le- like his late robert altman comeback you know he would make more mainstream movies after that and he made a few he made fall of the eagles with mark hamill and christopher yeah, lee yeah he
0: has like a weird trilogy i think chris mitchum shows up in another one called like dark vengeance or something like that <laughs> And in those movies, you feel like Franco is straight jacketed. Like these action pictures don't even feel like the throwback kind of Fu Manchu things that Franco, you felt that he was having fun with those when he made them for Harry Allen Towers. These like dour World War Two films about the Germans, one of them being Mark Hamill. Oh, boy. Rough going on those. I actually did watch one that he made in 1983, uh, speaking of comebacks, called The Revenge of the House of Usher. And this was supposed to be like Franco taking it seriously, not putting any sex in the movie, and telling like a classical story, Edgar Allan Poe uh, adjacent. Because let's be honest, it's not going to be like the original story. And what's interesting about it is it's probably the closest Franco got to making a film purely in that Orson Wellesian mode. Because uh, for people who don't know, I think we mentioned in the first episode, Jess Franco worked
1: with Orson Welles on Chimes at Midnight, Don Quixote, and I think that was probably it, right, uh, Will? Yeah, he was the second unit director on Chimes at Midnight. He was heavily involved in the celebrated battle scene of that film. And uh, cinephiles will know that Jess Franco in the 90s attempted to complete Orson Welles' long, uncomplete Don Quixote film with disastrous results.
0: And so this movie, Revenge of the House of Usher, it's very slow. It's very hypnotic. You're often wondering, wait, is this in a dream? And captured all these wide angle lenses that, you know, is very Wellesian and that Franco utilizes himself all the time. And it's mostly about Howard Vernon going insane in this like giant mansion. And, what's really interesting about the film is that it got into a film festival and the people in the audience hated it so much that it was trying to be like classical and not really anything happened that jess franco shot new footage and recut it not once but twice <laughs> so there are three versions of the movie that exist and in two of them howard vernon murders some people on screen and it's like a vampire like creature which i believe is in the version that was just released by kino under the title what was it will because i know you bought it
1: neurosis
0: neurosis that's right but thankfully, a fan has actually gone in and reconstructed the original version, and it's floating around online, if anybody's really curious. Stephen Thrower talks about that fan cut in his
1: book. By the way, this is one of the challenges of Franco scholarship, because many of his movies exist in many different versions. Some of them are uh, hardcore and softcore pornographic. Some you know, a movie like Exorcism is like 60 minutes of another movie with 30 minutes of new footage. You watched one this week. Oh, I think you're getting confused. You're uh, thinking the sadist of Notre Dame has
0: footage from Exorcism in it because, uh, Jeff Franco shot a bunch of stuff to make it even scummier than the original picture. And in both films, he stars
1: in them. And you know, it's a testament, I think to Franco's filmography that, Years ago, I saw Exorcism, and then some years later, I saw The Sadist of Notre Dame, and I didn't realize they were the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you you watched that one this week because that, that one stars him as the titular sadist. It's
0: interesting because of how scummy it is and because Franco stars in it like it's all about him and you get to follow him throughout. And that when he retold this story uh, in Sadist in Notre Dame, he actually made it and have even more of a downbeat ending, almost as if as he goes throughout his life, he's like, oh, no, I feel the thing that I need to express the most is how miserable I'm feeling at this time. What's interesting is that, like, after the whole Madinga thing that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the films that Jess made got cheaper and less interesting because he was forced to make them. He couldn't even be his own cinematographer. So, you know, near the Status of Notre Dame era, you feel him kind of like gaining his foothold again, gaining some creative autonomy, because that's all that Franco wants at the end of the day is to be behind the camera. Be in control. I don't remember what movie it is, but um, it's mentioned in one of the Franco books that like he's shooting a crowd scene and there's a background extra that's kind of like walking by in the background. Extra like looks into the camera, being like, "What's going on?" And Franco like angrily zooms into that person, <laughs> almost as if he's trying to be like, "F you! I want to make you the focus of this movie now."
1: In the '90s, his career started to slow down. Yeah, because
0: funding started to fall away as the companies that he worked for uh, started folding, and Franco. was was a bit of an older man at this point, so people didn't really have faith in him. But what really kicked things into high gear was actually a uh, publisher of a magazine and a company called One Shot Productions that kind of took Franco under their wing and gave him money to say, make whatever you want, as long as you shoot it in only a couple of
1: days. Oh man, some of those 90s ones that he shot on video are really tough to watch. I mean... All of those Eurotrash exploitation guys, once they left film behind, it was basically over. Like, there is something about the alchemy of film that adds to the dreamlike quality of their films. But when you watch something like Lust for Frankenstein, I think it was. Oof. I mean, you watch Killer Barbies, right? Well, Killer Barbies was actually shot on film, not that that helped it um killer barbies is a 90s one which i mean it feels like a 90s version of a jess franco movie it's a vehicle for a band a european punk band called the killer barbies who you know like the mystery machine before them stumble upon a haunted house in the forest and you know it's run by an old woman who needs the blood of young people to replenish her beauty and you know Franco's gifts haven't totally departed him here. There are a lot of striking images, there's striking use of color, and there's some mood and some atmosphere. But there's definitely a strong how-do-you-do-fellow-teenagers vibe to the movie. (laughs) I
0: mean, Franco definitely made up for it when he made a film years later called Killer Barbies versus Dracula because the world was demanding it.
1: (laughs) It's nice to know I still have so much to look forward to in my journey through the Franco filmography.
0: Well, it feels like all of these distributors, specifically Severin, will mine this Franco archive, the one that you're recording in, until it's bone dry. Because, like, there's always new discoveries to be made. There's no way that The Sex is Crazy is not going to get a special edition one to two years down the line. And all those Franco heads are going
1: to buy it up. Just be like, thank you, yes sir, please. And you know what they should, because The Sex is Crazy not one of my top ten Jess Franco movies, not one of my bottom ten Jess Franco movies, but just It's another example of the kind of pleasures that only he was able to give. It's a cinematic doodle book. It's a strange assembly of ideas. I mean, even the fact that he worked in a genre that people called horror erotica. I mean, who comes up with that? (laughs) it's, It's pure Franco. You know, he was a guy who was just... Shooting from the id and creating these bizarre cinematic dreamscapes.
0: There's so many movies I'm looking forward to, like Erotic Kill. Wait a minute. This is female vampire. Welcome to the fandom of Jess Franco.
1: Where there's surprises around every corner. Man, you know, they say that you never step in the same river twice because it's not the same river and you're not the same man. And it's very much the same with Jess Franco. <laughs> so, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. And as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at
0: com. And the first letter is from Avery Brooks. And it goes, hey, Justin and Will. Starting to wonder if cinephilia, a.k.a. obsessive-compulsive categorization of films and filmmakers for the purpose of displaying trivia knowledge to other dorks, is at odds with true examination of the properties of the form. Not totally sure what I mean by that, but I enjoy having Justin read my words. You guys are my favorite podcasters in a world of come town podcasts and chapos making millions a month. It's nice to hear a podcast run by ordinary dudes who aren't that successful. Feel like I can relate to you all. <laughs> keep up what you do. I would love to make chapo or a uh, come town. Yeah. So
1: if, If we do start making that kind of money, is this person not going to listen to us anymore? I mean,
0: we'd have to mention how much money we're making all the time, because that's the disingenuous things about those podcasts, is you can hear
1: them sitting on these giant piles of money as they're trying to talk about the common man. Well, be that as it may, Justin and I certainly love being armed with tons of facts that uh, nobody else cares about. But... You know, true enlightenment comes from being able to synthesize those facts into understanding.
0: (laughs) Welcome to the philosophy corner with uh, me and Will. You know, I think that cinephilia in of itself, the way that I define it, is mostly just an interest in movies or that art form in all of its aspects. The idea of like collecting or displaying stuff. The thing with that is nobody cares. And anybody that would care, all they're thinking is like, man, I wish I had all that stuff so I could show this person that I have it. So it doesn't really matter. Like the idea of like collecting a big, you know, collection of Blu-rays or DVDs. I like to do that mostly because I like to then pawn them off on other people. And be able to use it myself as a library of stuff that I can go back to again and again.
1: You know, I'll, I'll use an example here. I'm, I'll, I'll bring up Bay Logan because he's a bad man. We all know he's a bad man. So it's OK to badmouth him a little bit. Bay Logan, nobody knows more about Hong Kong film than him. He's done so many audio commentaries that are these incredible uh, barrages of facts. Um, but is he good for analysis? Maybe not. Mm. That's how I feel about Cinephilia.
0: Yeah, like the idea of I've seen all of this or I have a hard drive with a million movies on it. And he's like, okay. And does he appreciate it more than you? Maybe not. No, probably not. I mean, it's weird because like we know people who have no critical faculties when it comes to movies. They just kind of like absorb it and they're like, that's good. And you know what? That's fine. But as long as you as a like a fan or someone who loves exploring this entire form can realize that and are not at odds with it then you know you can continue on your merry way just kind of question the things that you consume and don't consume just to complete things because you will find no joy in that once you reach the finish line except jess Jess franco Franco. yeah once you watch all of his films you will become jess franco (laughs) it's like a a (laughs) wizard's curse (laughs) So thank you very much for that letter. And as per usual, you can email us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And I should also point out, you can also chat with me and Will and all of the Important Cinema Club fans, maybe even discuss a letter that's on the podcast by uh, joining us on the Patreon, which you can access if you are a $5 Important Cinema
1: Club Patreon member. Uh, What are we doing this week for our exclusive Patreon-only episode, Will? We both watched Bill and Ted Face the Music, the long-awaited third installment of the Bill and Ted franchise <laughs> long awaited i mean maybe for people that really love bill and ted i'm sure alex winter and keanu reeves long awaited it uh but we saw it and we'll discuss that as well as long gap sequels mm-hmm. uh
0: you know as sarcastic as i may have sounded there uh i have fallen in love with the bill and ted franchise having no nostalgic attachment to it because it was not something that i watched as a kid how did that happen why did that happen well you have to check out the patreon episode to find out and that's patreon.com slash the important cinema club also speaking of being millionaires i think we should do like a kind of patreon drive really push it you know i listen to all these podcasts and they're like it's max fun drive this month we have to do the important cinema club equivalent will yeah it's
1: like have you never seen the jerry lewis telethon it's it's like that i'll come out and i'll sing never walk alone <laughs>
0: We just need to remind people, because I feel like regular listeners that are not Patreon subscribers, it just kind of washes over them when we talk about Patreon stuff. Maybe they reach for that minute, like, skip, 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 until they get to the end
1: of the episode. Oh, well, you're missing out on some good content if you do that.
0: But I just want to remind people, if you're a fan of this podcast, please become a Patreon member. Uh, it's great. You get to chat with uh, fans of the podcast, me and Will, on the Discord channel, like I mentioned, and you also get... Our weekly episodes. They're all 20 minutes long. And if you really want to understand movies, you got to listen to these Patreon episodes.
1: Yeah, only then will you achieve enlightenment.
0: Exactly. So if you're not a Patreon member, but you listen to this regularly and you enjoy the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you do. And, you know, I promise that we won't make these Patreon drive things 10 minutes long, like every friggin' podcast I listen to.
1: Oh, God, it hurts so much. All right, moving on. So, what are we doing next week, Will? To coincide with the release of his new film on Netflix, we will be discussing Charlie Kaufman probably the most famous hollywood screenwriter who ever lived and he also
0: has a new novel out i believe his first which is about a stuck-up disconnected
1: film critic which is very funny i'm sure we'll watch adaptation right um what else are we gonna watch
0: i think we'll watch synecdoche new york uh being john malkovich which i would say is one of his more famous ones and if we have time why don't we watch one of the bad
1: Charlie Kaufman films like uh, Human Nature oh I believe God. was his first oh. outing with Michelle Gondry yeah I saw it when I was in high school you know at the peak of my Charlie Kaufman fandom I remember seeing
0: Eternal the Sunshine of the Spotless Mind when I was sick with my mother in cinema and she liked it according to her I'm sure she had no idea what was going on so yep that's what we're doing next week and until then my name is Justin McClure I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening hey Hello, this is Justin, interrupting briefly to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Tony Scott fan number one, Ead Bidwi, Evan Laffer, Adam Bishop, Daniel McFarlane, Stephen Calvert, and Hayden Michael Cole. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers, we could not do it without you, and as I said, we are doing a Patreon drive. We're trying to hit 300 subscribers by the end of the month. So if you're not a subscriber, get in on there because we're going to have exclusive stuff for only these 300 people. Do you have any suggestions of what you'd like us to do? Then send us an email at importantcinemaclubpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or just tweet at me at D-E-C-L-O-U-X, and the letter J. Or you can follow the Important Cinema Club on Twitter by just searching Important Cinema Club. We now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Beep, 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 beep. Beep, 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 beep. Oh, well, it's that time of week again. It's time for the regular Zack Snyder uh, Justice League hashtag Snyder Cut update. (laughs) Did you watch DC Fandom or whatever it was called? The event that they had, Will?
1: No, I don't even know what that is, actually.
0: (laughs) Oh, uh, DC Comics did like their own little Comic-Con. It was supposed to be in person, but this year,
1: obviously, it was all web-based. And they announced a bunch of stuff. Star Wars does that, too. They do an annual Star Wars. Uh,
0: All these companies are breaking off, like all the streaming services are doing as well, which is like, oh, you know, there's going to be a Warner Brothers thing and a a Disney thing and a this and that. And then eventually they're all going to fold and have to like return into a big monopoly, a.k.a. Disney that will then own everything. But at the new DC event, they finally announced more details on Zack Snyder's Justice League cut.
1: I'm sure you were on your tippy toes for that, right? Well, no, but I did see that trailer that leaked, the one that was set to, unbelievably enough... (laughs) I like how
0: you say leak as if it it escaped somehow.
1: (laughs) But it was set to Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah... Which is just an incredibly ballsy move on Zack Snyder's part. The the thing that he did that is universally regarded as his worst artistic decision, the use of Hallelujah and Watchmen. He's just doubling down on it. <laughs> he, I mean, he
0: has no F's to give anymore. Like he has a cult of people that no matter what he puts out, they will love it. Like everybody, like begging for this cut. They loved Batman versus Superman. So, like, there is nothing they will not like when it comes out.
1: You know, for a long time, and and maybe I even still am, uh, I've been rooting for these Release the Snyder Cut people. <laughs> I think it's charming and adorable, and I love that they care about art and artists, and I love that they're putting pressure on a gigantic corporation. I don't like Zack Snyder, and I don't like his vision, but... Um, you know, I, I thought it was charming that they were fighting for these principles that I share.
0: What's hilarious about all of this is number one, the justice league movie was always meant to be part one of two. And because the first one didn't do well, they were supposed to shoot them back to back. It didn't happen. So no matter what comes out, it will only be half of the story. And secondly, We've seen this movie! It came
1: out! We saw it with our own eyes! We saw a version of it that was, you know, 60% um, that guy, Joss Whedon, you know, with doing his his. Schtick. I mean, looking
0: at that trailer, it feels like I've seen all that stuff, but now I get to see it Oh man, with no color, <laughs> as if I turned the saturation down on my television. So as
1: I said, I've been rooting for these Snyder Cut people. I've been sympathetic to them. I've considered myself, well, I don't need to go further, but- Watching that trailer, I realized, oh, my God, I really don't want to watch this thing. This looks awful. And it's four hours. Four hours long. That is
0: insane. (laughs) That is like every piece of footage, right? I expect to see like Zack Snyder be like, cut. Off screen, and you see the same scene play like seven times, like a
1: Jean-Luc Godard film, just to get to that epic running time. Well, I mean, if it wasn't all in slow motion, the movie would probably be 85 minutes long. <laughs> well, it's a real Roger
0: Ebert-style takedown. <laughs> and the, uh, James Wan also made the announcement that the uh, next Aquaman movie will be more serious. Okay,
1: which is like what what who wants that i thought the pendulum was swinging in the other direction i thought it was going more more goofy all these things. i agree
0: and the fact that uh, aquaman can you believe this has made more money than any single batman
1: movie ever oh that's amazing (laughs) yeah Wow.
0: So it almost goes to show, huh, maybe people want hunks and jeans that wear like a chain wallet and fighting like big, colorful CGI things instead of gloomy, not good stuff. I mean, did we talk about the Batman trailer last week? I feel like we did, right? I
1: don't think we did. I don't think we did. Let's talk about it now, though, because I was I was watching it and thinking about. How much I would have been excited for this if I was 14 years old and it was the year 2003. Oh,
0: sorry. Now I remember. We talked about it in person when we watched a movie in your backyard. (laughs) Yes. But we talked so little. (laughs) That uh, is it recording? Is it not recording? So yeah. So the Matt Reeves Batman movie trailer came out. And what really bummed me out about it was that it just looks like another gloomy Batman. I mean, this has been a um, usual retort between me and Will, which is, can Batman have fun? Like, most of the kids fell in love with fun Batman.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm all for dark Batman, but maybe there could be a fun Batman in there somewhere. Like Technically, I guess the Lego Batman is fun Batman. (laughs) I guess. But, you know, even the Tim Burton ones, I mean, those are full of goofy stuff and, you know, Mm scenery-chewing actors. I know they were considered kind of dark in their day, but... I would like to just go back to even that tone. And
0: the fact that, you know, Matt Reeves is saying all the right stuff when he was talking about the movie, like, oh, you know, Batman is going to be a detective. Like, it's not about him having all the money and breaking the laws to solve things. It's about him kind of working his intelligence uh to get through a problem i'm like oh yeah i like that and then you see in the trailer batman just beat a small child and then say i am vengeance i'm like no this is exactly the opposite thing that i want
1: unbelievably depressing
0: yeah well we'll be there
1: we're gonna see in theaters Well, look you put a batman in a movie and i'm gonna go see it
0: (laughs) yeah you saw joker in 70 millimeters so you'll see anything